From the creator of the acclaimed Celebrate Poe podcast comes an audio journey into the life and works of America's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. Discover Whitman's cosmic perspective and how he captured the spirit of democracy through his groundbreaking verse. Join me, George Bartley, as I explore Whitman's impact on our culture. Official premiere for Celebrate Whitman is July the 4th, 2024. Thank you. Welcome to Celebrate Poe, every Monday night at 12 o'clock midnight. This is episode 59, Anastasia and Other Impostors. As you may know, last week I spoke with my cousin in Virginia, a former college professor, and she told me about her recollections of Anna Alexander and Anna's controversial claim that she was Russian royalty. Anna Alexander had a fascinating story, and this episode will examine her claims. But first, I want to examine the story of another person who claimed to be royalty, in this case, the son of a Flanders boatman who claimed that he was the rightful king of England, a man by the name of Perkin Warbeck. Now, a little bit bit of background to this. I was looking at the accomplishments of Mary Shelley and uh, saw that she wrote several volumes uh, after her husband Percy Shelley died. One was entitled, The Fortunes of Perkin Warbeck. I saw that and thought to myself, now, where have I heard that name before? You know, it's kind of like a friend that you maybe met 10 years ago, knew well for several days, and then never heard of again after that. Then it hit me, Perkin Warbeck, the imposter. You see, in grad school, I was assigned to do a presentation for my class about Perkin Warbeck, a pretender to the throne of England. I got the idea of doing a computer animation about imposters with Final Cut Pro, Logic, and Motion called The Top Ten Imposters of All Time and ended with a section on Perkin Warbeck. I had even brought in my computer to show the presentation on and was really excited. I had worked for hours on it and was quite proud of it. Uh, For the major part of our grades, we were uh, therefore supposed to grade each other. And I thought that would be really simple. Just look for the best parts in everybody's presentation and give them a good grade based on that. Look for the best in other people. Well, the next week, the professor gave us back the comments and said, everyone gave excellent comments except for one of you. And at that, he stared straight at me, and it was clear who he was talking about. He said, you have no business saying good things about those in your class. The people in this class are not your colleagues. They are your competitors and your enemies. So get used to it if you ever want to succeed in academia. So, I still have slightly bad memories associated with Perkin Warbeck, or at least with that assignment. Uh, Maybe I'm trying to repress them. I I just don't have that dog-eat-dog instinct to ruthlessly get ahead at all costs. But I digress. Mary Shelley's novel, 
the fortunes of Perkin Warbeck is slightly different from the historical accounts of Perkin Warbeck, but I wanted to emphasize the historical nature, the historical side of Perkin Warbeck for this podcast. Later Celebrate Poe will deal with the, with the tradition of the imposter or the person who claims to be someone different than he or she is because, along with horror and mystery stories, Poe delighted in portraying events that weren't true or might even be considered a scam. For example, in 1844, Poe published a story about a three-day trip across the Atlantic Ocean in a gas balloon. It was later revealed as a complete hoax, and the story was retracted. And this wasn't the only time that Poe presented a hoax as a true story. But back to Perkin Warbeck, who was a real person. But there the truth becomes murky. Probably the most reliable information we have about him was obtained as a result of questionable means just before his execution. But the information he gave regarding his family does match up with his family records and is probably reliable. And besides, why would you lie in a confession before an execution? And this was several hundred years ago. There is always the distinct possibility that Perkin Warbeck wasn't his real name, but I'm going to go ahead and call him Perkin Warbeck for simplicity's sake. So stay with me on this one. I I could uh, really get into the historical weeds, but I'm going to try and stick to the basics and keep the lengthy titles to a bare minimum. Now, Edward IV was king of England, and during a revolt, two of his sons were captured when they were children and are known today as the princes in the tower. The elder of the princes in the tower, Edward V, would have been next in line for the throne, and if Edward died, his younger brother Richmond or Rich, uh, Richard would have become king. At first, the general consensus was that both princes had died as a result of being kept prisoner in the Tower of London, whether it was from natural causes or murdered in the Tower. But rumors arose that uh, while Edward, the older brother, had died, his younger brother, Richard, was still living. And a significant number of English citizens began to believe that Richard was actually a man by the name of Perkin Warbeck. It was also possible that Perkin Warbeck received support because there was a considerable effort to reclaim the throne from the current king, Henry VII. He wasn't the most liked person in the world. Uh, The story was that his brother Edward, now we're talking about Richard here, that his brother had been murdered, but he had been spared by the murderers and had been sworn to not reveal his true identity for a number of years. Okay. And uh, Perkin Warbeck, however, was handsome, well-mannered, and acted like the perfect prince. In other words, a natural fake-it-till-you-make-it. In in, uh, 1495, he uh, hoped to lead a popular uprising, but instead the locals rallied for Henry the king, and the battle was over before Perkin even got off the boat. Eventually, he was imprisoned in England and paraded through the streets on horseback as a trophy. Perkin Warbeck confessed to being an impositor, 
an imposter and was given a room at Henry's court where he was able to attend royal banquets. After 18 months of this sort of house arrest in a gilded cage, you can't really say that the conditions were bad, Warbeck tried to escape. He was quickly recaptured and was then sent to the Tower of London. Whether this is the Tower of London for the second time, we don't know. But supposedly he tried to escape in 1499, was recaptured and hanged. Many authors believe that Perkin Warbeck was actually who he said he was. How could a lowly country boy speak English so eloquently and understand English manners so well at court if he hadn't been brought up in it? Most historians don't believe that he was Richard, Duke of York, but it would have been interesting if he had been able to escape from the Tower of London. The next two impostors were both teenagers when they pulled their most impressive frauds. Both lived in the 18th century and both forged some pretty impressive literature. Thomas Chatterton became known as the Marvelous Boy. Before he was 10, he taught himself how to write in Gothic characters by copying from an old Bible. In 1764, when he was only 12, he started producing ancient poems, which he claimed he had found in an old chest in the local church. He said they had been written by a priest named Thomas Rowley, possibly around Chaucer's time, and that would have been 400 years earlier. The scholars of the time were quite impressed, and Thomas left his native Bristol for London. But the London experts were not fooled so easily and declared his works to be forgeries. Although he had a minor success with his own poems and political satires, Thomas Chatterton's career was soon in ruins, and at 17 he took his own life. In his will, he left all the young ladies, my letters and poems. I leave my mother and sister to the protection of my friends, if I have any. The ironic part is that Chatterton could have succeeded just on his own genius. Unfortunately, it appears that he suffered from depression, always feeling that his work was not good enough. Uh, His work later became an inspiration to such poets as Wordsworth, Shelley, and Coleridge. He was immortalized in a painting by Henry Wallace and is the only forger to have had an entire opera written about him, Leon Covello's Chatterton. There's even a collection of Chattertonia in the British Library. It consists of works by Chatterton, newspaper cuttings, articles dealing with the Rowley controversy, and other subjects. The great English poet John Keats, who this podcast discussed in episodes 45 and 46, was also one of the many Romantic writers who did greatly admire Chatterton. Keats, who also died young, wrote the following sonnet in honor of Chatterton. Sonnet to Chatterton O Chatterton, how very sad thy fate! Dear child of sorrow, son of misery, how soon the film of death obscured that eye whence genius mildly flashed, and high debate how soon that voice, majestic and elate, 
melted in dying numbers. Oh, how nigh was night to thy fair morning. Thou didst dye a half-blown floweret, which cold blasts emate. But this is past. Thou art among the stars of highest heaven. To the rolling spears thou sweetly singest, not thou hemming Mars above the ingrate world and human fears on earth the good man base detraction bears from thy fair name and waters it with tears. There was another teenage forger of the time who wrote a rather mediocre play and passed it off as originally being written by William Shakespeare. Now, Henry Ireland had started early by... um, Uh, giving what he claimed were Shakespearean manuscripts and artifacts to his father, a London bookseller and Shakespeare enthusiast. William claimed that while working as a solicitor's clerk, a mysterious gentleman had entrusted all the documents into his safekeeping. He showed his father these documents, and he showed them to his friends, and the news of the Shakespeare discoveries just spread like wildfire. Uh, This might have begun as a small-town scam, but it developed into almost an industry. Henry Ireland then produced a land deed and other private papers of William Shakespeare. This led him to become bolder, and he produced original transcripts of parts of King Lear and extracts from Hamlet. And these were so convincing that even the diarist and biographer James Boswell paid homage. He said, I now kiss the invaluable relics of our bard. Thank God that I have lived to see them. I guess you could say that some people are willing to believe anything. Well, with this kind of success under his belt, Ireland really went to town. At the age of 17, he discovered and let me put that in quotes, discovered a brand new Shakespearean play which no one had ever seen before. He called it Vortigern. The play was produced at the Drury Lane Theater, a really big deal, on April the 2nd, 1796. The actor-manager, John Kemble, who was to play the lead, actually had some doubts about the authenticity of the piece. He even suggested that it would have been more appropriate to open the play a day earlier, which would have been April Fool's Day. But although the play did open on April the 2nd, Kimball got the last laugh. In Act 5, there was this speech which contained a line that brought down the house. And the line was, And when this solemn mockery is ended... Well, the audience hooted the rest of the play off the stage... The first performance of Vortigern was also its last, and the game was up for Ireland. The rest of his forgeries were detected, and the teenager confessed to everything. Although his his old father could never bring himself to believe that his treasured possessions were all fakes. I have a link to the text of Vortigern on the top of the show notes and transcript for this episode. But I'm not going to subject you to the text Uh, from any portion of the play in this podcast because it's pretty dry. But if you can't sleep some night, you might want to check out Vortigern or Shakespeare's Lost Play. I'd like to end this episode with the story of Anna Alexander, a lady who claims she was the Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia. 
This is a rather complicated but fascinating story, so I hope you'll stick with me as we explore the case of an individual who many people feel was the world's most well-known imposter. It all began with the 1917 Russian Revolution. The Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, Nicholas II and Alexandra, were captured and murdered in a basement of an old house in Siberia. The story goes that their four daughters and young son, the heir to the throne of Russia, were also murdered. Three years later, several police found a lady trying to commit suicide by jumping into a Berlin River. She was rescued by a police sergeant and taken to the local Elizabeth Hospital. Since she was without papers and refused to identify herself, she was admitted as simply Miss Unknown to a local mental hospital where she remained for the next two years. The lady had scars on her head and body and spoke German with an accent that the staff described as Russian. Later, she used the names Tchaikovsky and then Anderson. In March 1922, claims that Anderson was a Russian Grand Duchess first received public attention. Most of those who had been around the royal family said Anderson was an imposter, but others were truly convinced that she was Anastasia. In 1927, a private investigation firm identified Anderson as Franziski Swazkowski, excuse my Polish, a Polish factory worker with a history of mental illness. After a lawsuit lasting many years, the German courts ruled that Anderson had failed to prove that she really was Anastasia, but through media coverage, her claim became more and more well-known and even accepted. Basically, people wanted to believe that she was a princess. Now, hundreds of pages have been written about Anna's claims and how they became known all over the world. After all, laying claim to being Russian nobility and heir to billions of dollars in assets that the royal family owned would be a really big deal. And for a great and rather detailed account of the rest of the story, I highly recommend The Resurrection of the uh, Romanovs, Anastasia Anna Anderson and the World's Greatest Mystery by Greg King and Penny Wilson. And that book, again, is The Resurrection of the Romanovs, Anastasia, Anna Anderson, and the World's Greatest Mystery by Greg King and Penny Wilson. But right now I'm going to skip ahead to her last years in the United States. Anna Anderson had an especially strong supporter in the person of Gleb Bodkin. During the 1960s, he was living in the town of Charlottesville, Virginia, the site of the University of Virginia. Now, this gets even more complicated. Bodkin was a good friend of John Monaghan, or should I say, Dr. John Monaghan, the head of the history department at the University of Virginia and a genealogist. So, Monaghan knew a thing or two about the past as well as bloodlines. Bodkin and Monaghan paid for Anderson's journey to come to the United States. It is said that Anna Anderson had previously known Jack Monaghan in Europe, and she entered the United States on a six-month visitor's visa. Shortly before the visa was due to expire, Anderson married Manahan, who was 20 years her junior, in a civil ceremony on the 23rd of December 
1968. Botkin was their best man. Now, Jack, or Dr. Jack Manahan enjoyed this marriage of convenience and jokingly described himself as Grand Duke-in-waiting and son-in-law to the Tsar. I'm almost scared to refer to him without saying doctor first because he really, really liked his title. The couple lived in separate bedrooms in a house on University Circle in Charlottesville and also owned a farm near Scottsville. Now, you wonder, why do I mention that? Here's a little interjection. Homes and land near Charlottesville are astronomical in price. For example, John Grisham, Sissy Spacek, Art Garfunkel, and Dave Matthews are among the many wealthy people who have homes in Charlottesville. So it helps to have a great deal of money to own a home in Charlottesville. Scottsville is a country area near Charlottesville, and due to some kind of a zoning arrangement when uh, Scottsville was established, each property has to have at least 100 acres. I can't even imagine the price of land around Charlottesville. In other words, Dr. Jack Manahan was a very wealthy man and felt that proving Anna Anderson was actually Anastasia would be his crowning academic achievement. Anna legally changed her name to Anastasia Manahan. Uh, And as I've mentioned, the Manahans were extremely wealthy, but lived in squalor with large numbers of dogs and cats and piles of garbage. Jack Manahan, or Dr. Jack Manahan, was fond of calling himself Charlottesville's biggest eccentric. The Manahans were fond of attending social events. Uh, My cousin, you know, the retired college professor I mentioned last week, and her husband saw a play at the University of Virginia where Dr. Manahan and his wife were in attendance. My cousin said that she remembered them as a couple, very strange people that wanted to be the center of attention, but at the same time did not want anybody to notice them. Botkin died in December of 1969, and during the next year, the many lawsuits involving Anastasia's identity finally came to an end, with neither side able to establish Anderson's identity. They really couldn't decide whether she was royalty, but they couldn't decide whether she was not royalty. On uh, the 20th of August in uh, 1979, Anna Anderson was taken to Charlottesville's Martha Jefferson Hospital with an intestinal obstruction. Now, with both Manahan and Anderson in failing health, Anderson was institutionalized, and an attorney, William Preston, was appointed as her guardian by the local circuit court. A few days later, now get this, Manahan kidnapped, I guess that's the best way to put it, He kidnapped Anderson from the hospital, and for three days they drove around Virginia eating uh, out of convenience stores like teenage robbers on the lamb. I I get this image of an elderly Bonnie and Clyde on the run. After a 13-state police alarm, they were finally found, and Anderson was returned to the care facility. In January, she was thought to have a stroke, and on the uh, the 12th of February in 1984, she died of pneumonia. With uh, all that has been written about Anna Alexander, it seems that everything published about her claims say they tell the truth about what has happened. In reality, what you read depends on when the book was written. 
those written before the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, often give credence to Anna Alexander's claims, or at least talk their way around it. But after the fall of communism, the locations of the bodies of the Tsar, Tsarina, and all five of their children were revealed. Multiple laboratories in different countries confirmed their identity through DNA testing. DNA tests on a lock of Anderson's hair and surviving medical samples of her tissue showed that her DNA did not match that of the Romanov remains or that of the living relatives of the Romanovs. Instead, Anderson's DNA matched that of Karl Macher, a great-nephew of Franciska Skanskowski. I'm sure I pronounced some of that wrong. The Polish factory worker. Most scientists, historians, and journalists who have discussed the case accept that Anderson and Swaszkowski were the same person. Repeated and independent DNA tests proved that the remains were the seven members of the Romanov family and proved that none of the Tsar's four daughters survived the shooting of the Romanov family. Now, opinions vary as to whether Anderson was a deliberate imposter, delusional, traumatized into adopting a new identity, or someone used by her supporters for her own ends. According to writer Michael Thornton, quote, somewhere along the way, Anna Anderson lost and rejected her Polish identity. She lost that person totally and accepted completely she was this new person. I think it happened by accident, and she was swept along on a wave of euphoria, Lord Mountbatten, a first cousin of the Romanov children, thought her supporters simply got rich on the royalties of further books, magazine, articles, plays, etc. Prince Michael Romanov, a grandson of Grand Duchess Xenia Alexandrova of Russia, stated that the Romanov family always knew Anderson was a fraud and that the family looked upon her and the three-ring circus which danced around her, creating books and movies, as a vulgar insult to the memory of the imperial family. Now, as mentioned before, uh, we'll learn that the theme of fraud and imposter was central to several of Poe's works, especially in the science fiction genre. Sources for this episode include World Famous Crooks and Con Men by Vikas Katra, The Princes in the Tower by Alison Weir, The Fate of the Romanovs by Gred King, The Resurrection of the Romanovs, Anastasia, Anna Anderson, and The World's Greatest Mystery by Greg King and Penny Wilson. Why not visit my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Celebrate Poe, that's all one word, dot buzzsprout, that's all one word, dot com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Now, after the special episodes for Pride Month in June, Celebrate Poe is going to take a deep dive back into the life and writings of Poe. There are so many subjects involved in trying to understand Edgar Allan Poe and his complex works, 
but I feel a solid understanding of his greatness rests on mainly two aspects. Number one, his creativity. And by creativity, I'm including his inspirations and imagination. And number two, I believe the second main reason for his greatness is his use of language, his understanding of words and how to use them, especially in getting an effect. Beginning in July, Celebrate Poe will get back to uh, two other imaginative genres, largely from Europe, that influenced Poe, starting with the vampire-slash-undead genre from the Villa Diodati, where the first modern vampire story was written, and then covering the fascinating story of the black vampire, the first American vampire story, as well as later vampire stories and even movies. It is also felt that the werewolf genre, werewolf genre of stories influenced Poe, especially in his use of the doppelganger theme. Then Celebrate Poe will specifically cover Poe's years as a child in England, especially his education. Then Celebrate Poe will specifically cover the writer's years as a child in England, especially his education in Stoke Newington. I am finding some Uh, really exciting stuff regarding the information that he learned, especially in the form of classical rhetoric, information that he used to become one of America's greatest writers. Discussing classical rhetoric might seem a bit dry when you first look at it, but I have a feeling that you will find it fascinating and, and understand Edgar Allan Poe in a new way. The episode to be released on June the 7th at midnight deals with Bayard Taylor, the author of Joseph and His Friend, a book written in 1870 that is generally agreed to be the first novel about a homosexual relationship by an American. On June the 14th, the episode will be about Fitz Green Halick, an extremely popular author during his time who was greatly admired by Poe as well as the public in general. He was sometimes called the American Byron, and his works have been studied a great deal recently because of their homosexual themes. The episode to be released on June the 21st deals with the homoerotic works of Walt Whitman, one of America's greatest poets, and a man Poe actually met and regarded highly. And finally, on June the 28th, this podcast will have an episode uh, regarding an individual who was greatly influenced by Poe, Oscar Wilde. This episode will deal with the friendship of Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman, the years Wilde spent in prison, and a comparison of Wilde's The Portrait of Dorian Gray with two stories by Poe, William Wilson, and The Oval Portrait. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.